Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Monday, July 28th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So every Sunday in the New York Times, there's a huge story. It's in the middle of the front page, and then you go, and then you find it's 17 pages inside, usually only two pages. And I don't read all of those huge stories, because I find that if I don't read them and they're really important, somehow I get to know them. But I do read some of them. And you know what I miss when I don't read a huge one? A detail. There's always a detail. It's not the telling detail like we talked about all the time. It's not the one small thing that stands for the larger. It's just sometimes a cast off or a little fact that is fascinating or in the case of one a few weeks ago, infuriating. And I never got to mention this, but there was that article about the girl who went to Hobart and she got raped and the school just bungled the investigation like happens so often. And they detail about just everything that went wrong. And at the center of this is this the panel that hears the testimony. And it was just one sentence, but they talked about who made up the panel that investigates rapes on campus. And one was the vice president of human resources. One was an assistant professor of psychology. And the third person on the panel was the woman who ran the bookstore because, quote, she had expressed an interest in serving on the panel. So that stood out to me. Now, yesterday, there was about the guy and the family that owned the ferry that collapsed in South Korea, a guy named Yu, Yu Byung-yoon, and they would call him Mr. Yu. And he was this millionaire, but he was mostly known as sort of a cult leader in South Korea. They've tried to arrest him. And there were all these details I didn't even know about that this guy who ran the ferry that collapsed and killed all those people, and it wasn't just an accident. I mean, they loaded up the ferry because they were really greedy. But the family has sort of positioned him as if he were a zen-like artistic genius, and they spent a million dollars, a million and a half dollars, to put his works in the Louvre, and they spent a million dollars to rent space in Grand Central Terminal to show his works, and then they quoted experts saying, yes, his work are pretty much worthless. But the thing that really stood out to me, that's been reported elsewhere, is about the cult he led, his church's teachings. And his church would make money selling products like green tea to adherents because cleansing the body was really important. And they had this line, they even sold enema kits to cleanse members' bodies of impurities. So this guy had a multi-million dollar empire based in part on enema kits. And I know that when we talk about cults, we always get, it's usually about money. We focus it on the money. It's very often about sex, right? But so often we forget the enema part of it. And there is a big enema connection to many cults. And that's just what I'd like you to be aware of. So today on the show, we'll be talking about taste, matters of taste, but how taste relates to the other senses. And in the spiel, a remembrance of my former NPR colleague, Margot Adler. But first, let's get back to the idea of empire. John McCain says of our current moment, I do believe that the things we're seeing in the world today in greater turmoil than any time in my lifetime. That's probably not true, but things ain't good. American diplomats had to flee Libya, over a thousand dead in Gaza, hundreds of thousands dead in Syria. Oh yeah, Ukraine. Oh yeah, Boko Haram. My God, remember them. So what do we do? 
We used to, by we, I mean most great nations used to do empire. Now it's not a popular idea. It's not a word that's in keeping with how the U.S. likes to think of itself. But it's actually not bad if it's disorder that you abhor. One foreign policy writer and thinker who's willing to argue for the idea of empire is Robert Kaplan, who is a chief geopolitical strategist for Stratfor and the national correspondent for The Atlantic, where he wrote an article a little while ago titled In Defense of Empire. Robert Kaplan, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure to be here, Mike. So when you defend empire, obviously, and I think we need to dispense with this, it has connotations because of communism, because of Nazism, and those were, you know, somewhat insane utopian ideas. But as you point out, not every empire has to be fueled by these ideas. Exactly. Uh, What I'm pointing out is, first of all, not every empire is Western. When we think of empire, we tend to think of Western colonialism. But there is the Songhai Empire in Africa, the Maoran Empire in India, uh, the various uh, Persian empires of antiquity, uh, and many, many others, the Han, uh, the Song, the Tang, and other empires in China. What I'm saying is, it's the default way of governance for thousands of years with the Western democracy relatively new. So to say that empire is altogether bad shows a very shallow understanding of history. It depends what empire, when, and under what circumstances. That's all I'm saying. I'm also saying something else, that with the United States having sea and air forces deployed all over the globe, with a military that is many times the size of the next 10 or so militaries in the world put together. The United States is in all practical, in any practical sense, an undeclared empire and has been since the end of World War II. Okay, so let's take the uh, military and the uh, statistics about how large the military is. Might not not raise the issue of the tail wagging the dog. Hey, we have this huge military. We might as well need to use it as opposed to maybe we should rethink the size of our military if we're rethinking the role of empire. Oh, well, first of all, we should always rethink the size of our military regardless. Everybody knows the Pentagon can be run on a much more efficient basis than it is. However, our preponderant military with warships deployed in the Indian, Mediterranean, Pacific, and other oceans, uh, and the air accompaniment that goes with that, basically came into being not because we wanted to take over the world, but because at the end of World War II, China was decimated, Japan was decimated, the European continent was decimated, and we faced a severe ideological existential threat from Stalin's Soviet Union. And that was the beginning, essentially, of this what I would call an imperial-like military. If the United States was more oriented towards embracing the idea of empire, how would that improve our policy outcomes in take any of the conflagrations from Palestine to ISIS to Putin? Take anyone and tell me how the United States being an empire would help things. First of all, no American politician should embrace officially the idea of empire, in quotes. If throughout that article in The Atlantic, instead of empire, I had just used great power preponderance or primacy or some political science term like that, there would have been nothing controversial about the article. It's the word empire that elicits strong emotions. 
So it's the term itself that is radioactive, but the concept is essentially a definition of how the United States has operated under both Democratic and Republican administrations since the end of World War II. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was Moldova. I know you've been there. And it does seem that those countries that uh, Vladimir Putin is either actively seeking to foster an overthrow of government or an alignment with Russia, this is definitely something to watch. But what should the United States do? And let me say that I think I don't know if it was a conscious choice or the White House's idea of let's intervene less. But I think there's something to be said for allowing Putin to make some horrible choices and gathering up some of the world's failed economies and letting that sink Russia. But what do you think should be done? Um, oh, first of all, there's a lot that can be done in Moldova, and it may actually be starting to be done. Putin is an intelligent, former intelligence officer, not an apparatchik. You know, his policy in these places is to try to take over places from within to undermine them, buy up media through third parties, bribe politicians and weak democracies, etc., etc. What we require is a, is a true whole-of-government approach, intelligence, economics, public relations, diplomacy, to duke it out behind the scenes with Russia in a place like Moldova. Uh, you know, immediately you write an article like that and people, again, accuse you of saying, well, you want to intervene, you want boots on the ground. No, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. We need to be just as subtle and deft behind the scenes and aggressive as the Russians are. Robert Kaplan is chief geopolitical strategist for Stratfor and a national correspondent for The Atlantic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Every once in a while, you come across a scholarly journal that just grabs you, every article. This was the case with the journal Flavor, which is about food, but it's actually about other senses other than taste. So some articles include color influences sensory perception and the liking of orange juice, the plating manifesto from decoration to creation, the taste of Kandinsky assessing the influence of the artistic visual presentation of food on the dining experience. And the flesh that one out a little bit, it talked about how the more artistically arranged a salad was, the better we seem to have liked it. Well, one of the authors of many of these studies and sort of the star of the flavor journal is Charles Spence, who's a professor of experimental psychology. His official bio of his university website has this sentence. Charles Spence is interested in how people perceive the world around them. Well, you know what? I am too. Hello, Professor Spence. How are you? Very well. Very well. Thank you. There are so many studies that just popped to me and I said, I not only never thought of that, I never even thought to think of this. Let's go through a couple of these studies. Airplane noise and the taste of umami. Mm. <laughs> what you find? So that's kind of um, based on the observation that when one's up in the air and you can look at what sorts of drinks people typically order off the drinks trolley, more often than not it's kind of a tomato juice or a Bloody Mary, or at least that's far more often the case than you see in a bar on the ground. turns out that kind of intuition backed up statistically. But there are many people out there who will order tomato juice or, or Bloody Mary in the air and will never, never order one on the ground. What's going on here? 
Uh, we think it's something about the difference in the atmosphere up in the air. That's partly about the lower cabin pressure, the dry air, but it may also be uh, critically about the sound that you hear. So very loud engine noise, maybe 80, 85 decibels up there in the sky. Uh, and we and others have done research to show uh, that your ability to taste food can be suppressed by very loud uh, background noise, be that in the airplane uh, or be it in uh, many of those North American restaurants, it has to be said. So is the idea that you need a bolder flavor to taste? That's why people would go for a Bloody Mary? Well, uh, what's characteristic is maybe that it's, it's very rich in tomato, um, Worcester sauce, very rich in this umami, kind of the fifth taste, kind of meaty or delicious, as the Japanese might translate it. And whenever you give people that kind of taste in the lab, what you find is that it kind of hangs around in the mouth much longer than the other tastes. Our hypothesis is that loud background noise, as in the airplane, while it might make things sweet things harder to taste, while it definitely makes salty things harder to taste, that background noise might actually have no impact on the taste of umami, and hence we're kind of self-medicating in the air when we, when we ask for a tomato juice, uh, and many of the world's top islands now are picking up on these kind of ideas, and in fact adjusting their menus for uh, at least the front of the plane so that they are richer in umami you fly much nicer airlines than I do. They don't care about me on my airlines to that extent. But no, it's, an, it's a good insight. Now tell me about salads and Kandinsky. So we have a, a young Franco-Colombian chef working in the lab with us at the moment, uh, Charles Michel. Our chef was kind of up there in New York uh, staring at uh, Kandinsky uh, 201, hanging in the MoMA Museum, uh, reading about this abstract impressionism and seeing these kind of splashes of color. And with his chef's eye, he could see, you know, sauces, reductions, even a slice of, of, of mushroom over in one corner. Uh, so when he came back to the lab, he uh, created a salad out of uh, about 31 ingredients and sauces and plated it so it looked just like painting 201 from Kandinsky. Uh, quite often we'll serve it to our uh, subjects uh, from a painting canvas. And if we're feeling a bit naughty, we might even get them to eat it with a paintbrush. You come into the lab, you see this salad, you have to say, how much would you pay for that? How much do you think you're going to like it? You then get to eat as much or as little of the salad as you, as you like. And we ask you afterwards, how tasty was it? And now you have tasted it, how much would you actually pay for that dish? And what we find is when we present those very same ingredients, looking kind of very pleasing to the eye, as in the Kandinsky painting, people enjoy the dish far more, uh, they consume more, and they're willing to pay far more for the dish than when we just take the same 31 ingredients and toss them into a regular salad. Hmm. So I'm thinking of a dessert with maybe the caramel and the chocolate drizzled on top. Might the chef be smarter to actually do a Jackson Pollock-esque <laughs> splatter drizzle? <laughs> you laugh, I laugh. No, uh, that is what they are doing. They go over in a linea and um, your dessert, uh, they may take away all the cutlery, all the plateware. They'll put a kind of a, a plastic sheet over the table and out come the chefs. And they just splatter the tabletop in a Pollock-like manner. And then you all get to share the dessert on top of the table. Kind of an interesting challenge, a uh, sort of playful idea. But more and more chefs are doing it. And I think uh, many are wise to really understand just how important the eye is. We've all heard the phrase, we eat with our eyes. And this is kind of providing support to that uh, argument. And that even with very simple changes, if you can get people to eat more salad, then how many parents out there wouldn't want to know uh, that as a little trick for dinner time. So there are too many studies to mention. You studied classical music and wine. You studied the effects of if you change the shape of a chocolate bar, as Cadbury did, and people were saying, no, it tastes differently. And one that just seems so fundamental is the shape and feel of cutlery on flavor. So this is the last one. I won't make you go through your entire life's work, but tell me, what is the big thing that we learned about how cutlery influences taste of food? The shocking thing, in a way, 
ways. If you go back 100 years, sort of Victorian times, uh, a set of cutlery for somebody in a fancy house might run to 80 or 100 items. You'd have your olive fork and your tomato spoon and, and who knows what else. Nowadays, it's very limited what we eat from. We only have a knife, fork and a spoon. Uh, they're made out of stainless steel or maybe silver if we're posh or plastic if we're in the air. That's it. Go back 200 years and all these different materials, there was wood, there was bone, there was uh, all sorts of stuff. And so what we're doing in our research is saying, hey, you've seen all the exciting stuff going on on the plates in restaurants. Why are the top, world's top chefs still using just a regular three or four tined uh, fork and a knife? Could we enhance the experience by changing the material of the spoon or the fork or the knife, by changing its size, by changing its weight, by changing its texture? Even there are some chefs changing the temperature of the cutlery. And we may be doing an experiment where we're serving people rabbit. And rather than just throwing the rabbit skin away, if you clean it and then attach the rabbit skin to the end of the fork and knife, you have a very different kind of relationship to your meat. You feel texture on the hand, uh, and it's got a whole new experience. Something that I think probably the Italian futurists back in 1910 in northern Italy were sort of playing around with when they, when they had dinner parties with, with everyone wearing pyjamas of different textured materials, and you'd eat the food while rubbing your neighbor's pyjamas. Yeah. Here we can do it with cutlery. I just think there's a whole world opening up, and now designers are getting, you know, coming to the table, as it were, uh, and starting to say, hey, we can create the table where the, cut, the cutlery, the plateware of the future, and it will be based both on the designer's kind of intuitions and creativity, but also built on the science from the psychology lab that will ultimately hope to deliver. Say, say we can make a spoon that tastes sweeter. Yeah. How useful would that be? In that we could then potentially reduce the amount of sugar in the food we eat uh, and deliver some of the, kind of the, the, the sweetness uh, from the cutlery instead. So far, we haven't got that perfect spoon. We've got a spoon that will make your food taste more bitter. If someone sold a furry fork, I'm in. I would like that. <laughs> Charles Spence is a professor and head of the Cross-Modal Research Laboratory at the University of Oxford, where he's a professor of experimental psychology. He's also a key contributor to the journal Flavor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. My friend and colleague Margot Adler died today. If you've listened to NPR within the last 35 years, yes, 35 years, you've probably heard Margot. To remind you of what she sounds like, and also to demonstrate something that she did really well, let me play you a bit from a 2013 piece where she recounted her Dutch cousin's story of hiding from the Nazis during World War II. I started with that moment years ago, right before the Chinese food arrived. When you said that, it was like, where did that come from? I never talk about it because it is boring. So did you hear the part where she went from the read, where she as the reporter was reading from a script, to when she was actually sitting next to her cousin, the part with, uh, where did that come from? That is authentically Margot. Not that her read is inauthentic. On the contrary, she's probably the best that NPR had at voicing a story. But in real life, she bubbled. Which reminds me of Cauldrons, which brings me to Witch. Margot was a witch. Wiccan. She was happy to let you call her a witch. She had fun with her beliefs. She didn't have powers. She wasn't particularly into astrology, say. But she had a broomstick on her wall, and she thought it was hilarious when People Magazine posed her for a photo shoot in Central Park for a story on modern paganism. So yeah, there was the bubble-bubble and the double-double, but there was very little toil and really no trouble. She wrote a book. 
It was the authoritative text on Wicca and paganism. And in a way, she was sort of the best witch you could meet. Her Wicca appeal wasn't that she made you think about Wicca in a whole new way. She didn't explode all your Wiccan myths and try to convince you that Wicca is no different from any other form of belief that could easily fit into the busy working mom's lifestyle with pantsuits and three-inch heels and having it all. It seems these days like all belief systems are desperate to position themselves as modern lifestyle accessories. Google Glass for the soul. But not Wicca, or not Wicca as Margot lived it. It was definitely hippie and flowing skirts and dancing the drums and occasionally getting naked and conversing with nature. All that stuff you thought it was. But Margot could laugh along with you, or along with my jokes about it. She knew who she was. And it's also important to note that in addition to Wicca, she was a real classic New York liberal Jew. She was the granddaughter of psychologist Alfred Adler. She went to Berkeley. She was deeply enmeshed in the free speech movement. She hosted a radio program called Hour of the Wolf on WBAI. And at NPR, she would eagerly pitch stories that were the hot topics amongst her Upper West Side coffee clatch. Don't worry, NPR's editors and those stories did not make the air. Well, most of those stories didn't make the air. So Margot was not exactly the opposite of a stereotype. But she was so comfortable in what she was, and she just lacked any venom for anyone who wasn't like her. And she was a really interested person. And the best way to be interesting is to start off interested She was great at covering protests or covering really any community that's usually ignored. A couple of years ago, I saw her give a lecture, and she billed it as a sermon because it was in a church, and her topic was vampires. So the accepted theory, if you want to think deeply about vampires, what they say is, you know, vampires address a current generation's anxieties. So all the vampires in the 80s were about AIDS, and the original Dracula was about foreigners. So Margot knows that this is the theory. But she brought vampirism research to the next level. She noted that vampires suck the life out of things. She noticed that vampires consume potency. You know, Margot noticed all this and said, wait a minute, what's going on? We are the vampires. It's about environmentalism and the planet and our place in it. It's all reflected in the title, Vampires Are Us. I told her she missed a marketing opportunity to have right there on the title page, Witch on Vampires. And we laughed. She laughed loudly and often. That quality, in fact, was so prevalent that when NPR went to cubicles, it was decided that it would be wise for Margot to have her own office because Margot laughed at herself, at the world, and I bet at whatever version of the afterlife she's covering now. Margot Adler was 68. She died in her home in Manhattan and is survived by her son, Alex. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts. Her WFMU program, YOY, can be heard through a generous grant provided by Halliburton. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts and also has a line of macaroni necklaces that have toured the capitals of Europe as part of a Koch Brothers-funded exhibit. The Gist tweets at Slate Gist. I tweet at Pescami. That's Pesca M-I. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. We're on Facebook facebook.com slash slate gist we've reached a thousand likes that's a milestone i was happy when we did that but as a point of comparison i looked up the halifax regional police they have 10,591 likes some of their items are 
50-year-old Sambro man faces drug charges after search of a residence in the 100 to 200 block of Old Sambro Road. Email the gist at slate.com. I should note, on July 18th, Halifax Regional Police responded to suspicious circumstances at a business and learned that two well-dressed men entered the business claiming to be representatives of a debit machine service provider, and they asked suspicious questions about the store's machines. Update! The two men actually work for a debit service provider. This all under the headline, Update, Suspicious Circumstances Not Suspicious After All. Thanks for listening. 